Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper." Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, Wes. Good morning to those of you who are worshiping with us from home. Uh, We miss having you here, uh, but it's great to be with those who are able to be here this morning. I'll have a story to share with you. A man by the name of Tony Snow was a successful commentator and broadcaster. And unfortunately, in 2005, he announced that he had colon cancer. 
he had surgery and chemotherapy, and that was seemed to be turning things in the right direction because then in April of 2006, Tony Snow became the press secretary uh, for the President of the United States. But unfortunately, on March 23, 2007, Snow, who was 51 years old at the time, announced again that the cancer had come back with tumors found in his abdomen, which led to surgery in April, followed by more chemotherapy. Snow then went back to work in the White House briefing room on May 30th, but unfortunately he had to resign on August 31st, 2007, because the prognosis was not good. The husband and father of three was terminal and now had to wait. Snow had to walk in the valley of darkness. The prognosis was this. Wait on God and expect more suffering. Maybe you've entered the valley of waiting on God at some point in your life. Maybe you are living in that valley right now. Maybe as you look to the future, it doesn't seem like like there's going to be any reprieve in sight for what's in front of you. This is the place that we find Daniel as we come to chapter 8. As we've heard Wes read this vision that he gets, there's a lot of uncertainty. But remember the context of this chapter. Like with last week's chapter in chapter 7, that chapter and this chapter actually occur in the timeline of Daniel between chapters 4 and 5. So in chronological order, Daniel actually had these visions and dreams back before uh, the handwriting on the wall. So for him, life in the nation of Israel had gone from bad to worse. King Nebuchadnezzar had obviously taken over the nation of Israel, had brought the people to Babylon. They were under oppression. And then Nebuchadnezzar's gone, and now they are living under a context of a king who, as we learn from chapter 5, is one who is not honoring God in any way. So Daniel has a dream in chapter 7 that makes him anxious to the degree that his color changed. It was a vision of the coming destruction. And so Daniel has another dream that doesn't seem at all any more encouraging than that dream. Now, even as Daniel sees this image, he doesn't understand what it is, but we don't need to be uh, concerned. We don't need to be worried when we encounter passages of Scripture that we don't understand. Because oftentimes, as we said last week, apocalyptic literature at first reading doesn't make sense. But know this, God is not hiding things from us. Rather, he intends for us to anticipate the real thing that's going to happen. Even though these are describing events that are going to happen and we don't know exactly what those look like, We're to anticipate the real thing that is coming. And this genre of scripture often can keep us on the edge of our seats. So rather than being confused, we should focus on the details that we do know rather than the details that we don't know. So in this passage, we are going to look at three expectations that we can have 
as we live in the valley of darkness, as we wait on God. Three expectations that we can have. This is the first expectation. The kingdoms of this world that exalt themselves will be shattered. So expectation number one is the kingdoms of this world that exalt themselves will be shattered. Now you might think, well, how does that help me right now in the midst of my valley of darkness? So just hold on a little bit. As we look at some of the context, I think you'll see how this applies to our lives right now. Now, as we come to the chapter, you know, Daniel, he's in this place where it almost seems kind of magical at first. If you're just reading the first two verses, I mean, as we come, you know, Daniel is, has this vision, and then in verse 2, and he sees a vision, and we seize it, and then this interesting thing happens. He, he, it's almost like he goes on a magic carpet ride. He's carried high into the sky, off to a distant place, which is now present-day Iran, and then he comes down over the province of Elam, and in view of the fortified city of Susa, and it kind of looks cool, and before he blinks twice, he's beside the Uli Canal. But at that point, that's where the expectation of something exciting seems to end. Because then Daniel sees this crazy vision that Wes just read for us. But then if you look in verse 15, it says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. So Daniel wants to understand it. He gets a vision again. He wants, I want to understand it. And he says, I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli Canal, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So think about the context of what is happening here. He has a vision, and the place where he is feels real to him in that moment. And he's there, and he's looking across from him. There's this person that, that it looks like a man. He's not certain if it's a man, but then there's another voice that comes from somewhere that tells this person that looks like a man, says, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So we learn the name of this man. His name's Gabriel, and we're actually going to learn he's not just, he's not a man, he's actually an archangel of the Lord, a created being to serve the purposes of God. And so this is what happens. Look at verse 17. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So this isn't the main point of the passage, but here's the reality. Like angels aren't fat babies with wings flying around, okay? When people encounter angels in the scriptures, they tend to fall on their face like Daniel fell on his face. Sometimes they, uh, you know, individuals who fall on their face, they worship the angel and the angel's like, look, I'm not God. Stop worshiping me. Get up. And so he gets him up. And he says, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So he's going to tell Daniel what this dream is about. So let's see. Let's find out what he tells him because I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to know what's this all about because this is confusing to me. So verse 20, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. 
And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place in which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but, with his, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. So it talks about him. His power shall be great but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper. So this individual is going to exalt the things that are wrong and probably suppress the things that are right. It says he's going to make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall become, in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Now, I don't know about you. If I'm crying out and asking for an interpretation, and an angel comes to me and says, this is what the interpretation is, I'm going to be like, maybe I won't because I'm, I'm in the presence of an angel, but I, I kind of want to be like, can you give me a few more details than that? I mean, you said you were going to give the interpretation and you threw out a couple of names of the nations, but this is not a whole lot of detail. And there are some who want to read uh, visions like this in the scriptures and they want to give more detail than God gave detail. It seems that it's the Lord's voice that told Gabriel, interpret the dream for him, and the Lord didn't have Gabriel give more. Like, I want names, I want dates, I want locations, I want to know what's going on. I kind of like to keep things in front of me. But God doesn't reveal that to Daniel. In God's purposes, he doesn't reveal that to Daniel. But here is reality. He gives enough specificity that with us in the time that we live, as we look back on the time after Daniel lived, these events have actually been fulfilled. Now, generally, we would be cautious to say those kinds of things about prophecies because of the imagery that's there and there's a lack of specificity. But here, actually, Gabriel gives some specificity. He references the, the Medo-Persian empire. He, in, in verses three and four, he, he references the, the Medes and, and the Persians. And we know, even from the book of Daniel, that the, the Medo-Persian empire came in. What happened at the end of chapter 5 when the current king, when he has this vision, dies? Who takes over? Darius the Mede. And then we know beyond that, beyond Daniel's life, this goat that comes, we're told, is a Greek. And there was a Greek that came and conquered the world. His name was Alexander the Great. And the goat's horn was broken off, as we learn in verse 8. Alexander the Great had conquered the known world by the time he was 32 years old before dying at the age of 33, broken off at the height of its power. And it goes on. The horn that was replaced by the goat. Alexander's Greek empire was actually divided and ruled by four Greek generals. And from 
the four horns comes one small horn that grows in power and moves south and east and toward the glorious land of Israel, just as Antiochus Epiphanes did. This is what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He invaded Israel. He slaughtered thousands. He murdered any circumcised infant. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. He put a statue of Zeus in the sanctuary. He cut up and threw down the holy scrolls, the law of the Lord. Says he's going to throw down truth. And his desecration of the temple lasted over six years, some 2,300 evenings and mornings that we see in verse 14. It's not some speculation that these events are, have happened because Gabriel clearly says that the two-horned ram is Media and Persia and the goat is Greece. And he even says that the final horn that stands against the prince of princes will be destroyed not by human power. This guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, when he died, he didn't die because a ruler took him over. He died of a bowel disease that actually drove him crazy, like gut cramps and diarrhea that drove him mad. And in addition, the well-known historian Josephus actually recorded when referring to Alexander the Great that Alexander the Great had a vision that he needed to conquer the Persians. And he recorded that, that he read about himself in the book of Daniel. Now that sounds like it's far-fetched. It sounds like something out of a movie somewhere. Oh, all these things kind of came together. No, these things actually happened. They're affirmed from history and they happened in God's word. And it's interesting how many will affirm Josephus as being a reliable historian, but yet they want to kind of throw out this little piece because they're like, well, you know, well, that can't be true. Because the reality is, is if you accept him as being a reliable historian, you have to accept the reality that this prophecy was fulfilled with amazing accuracy. Friends, these events were revealed to Daniel, and then they happened. And we have to accept that when we open God's word, that God has spoken. There's a reason we preach the word of God every week. There's a reason we open this word together when we gather in small groups. There's a reason we study this to abide in Christ. There's a reason we say that this is authoritative because it is, it is God's word. And we have to accept that God has far more authority over our lives than we would like to admit. And we get to that reality because if the kingdoms of this world that exalt themselves are shattered, then, then we can know that God is extremely powerful and that he can meet us in the challenges that we face. These kingdoms, these kingdoms were so powerful, no one thought anyone would defeat them. They were on top of the world. 
They didn't appear to have any weakness. Yet the destiny of each kingdom was in the hands of the Lord. And so for us, the challenge you face right now or any challenge you might face in the future is ultimately in the hands of the Lord. It will not ultimately trample you, but the challenge you face will ultimately be trampled. Nothing in your present can separate you from your future. As we referenced this verse last week, Romans 8, for I am sure of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So though we expect Though we expect the kingdoms of this world that exalt themselves will be shattered, we also expect that the God who controls them, he is in control of our lives. Expectation number two, God is working when we are in the valley of darkness. God is still working in the details around you even when you're in the valley. God is even working in the midst of the messes that we create. Look at verse 12. It says, and the host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. Or it can even be translated or in an act of rebellion. There's rebellion that has happened. The people of God were in exile for 70 years years. They were in captivity for 70 years because of generations of rejecting God and his ways. Now you may be experiencing a trial that's the fruit of your own sin and failures. And I think we need to not be discouraged because God is still working. God was working with Daniel and God is working in you. God's own people rejected the Messiah John even wrote about this in his gospel. He said that Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The leaders of God's own people sent Jesus to be crucified. So even if you are in the place of a mess that you have created, there's a way. There's a way of escape for you. God's working because he sent his son Jesus to the cross. If you've never trusted in Christ, and if you're wondering, no, God, uh, the things I've done, you don't understand the things that I've done. God's not going to forgive that. We already know that it will be forgiven because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you can know that today, whether you find yourself in trial because of your own mess or whether you find yourself in the dark place because you've never trusted in Jesus, you can come to him right now because God is still working in the mess. And the cross is where God gave his final answer to our rebellion. And the cross is the guarantee that God's plan will prevail in the face of our weaknesses and in the face of our rebellion and our sin. Friends, your mess does not thwart the purposes of God. It doesn't. If their arrogance 
and strength did not thwart the purposes of God. Nothing that you've done is going to thwart the purposes of God. In fact, God takes your mess and displays his glory by forgiving you, by transforming you, by sending you out. I know after this, I'd love to jump in and studying Ezra or Nehemiah. Maybe that's for some time in the future. And God does some amazing things with his people and rebuilding the temple. But we won't get to that. But God is at work. And God is even working when, when it seems evil is winning. God is working when it seems that evil's winning. Remember, Daniel's living under the rule of an unrighteous king. Hardship he's facing. And the vision he gets indicates that hardship is going to to continue. It's not going to end anytime soon. Because it says in verse 26, the vision of the evening and the mornings that is told is true, but he sealed up the vision because it refers to many days from now. Now, why does he seal this up? Why is it that he's going to set it aside, but yet God's people obviously read it? It was set aside because it was going to be needed to be pulled back out and dusted off and read because the last chapter had not been written. We needed to know, they needed to know that when you're in the midst of the mess, that the the last chapter hasn't been written. When oppression comes from the outside, when it seems like evil is winning, the chapter that we want to be written right now may not be written till later. We must understand there's a greater plan and we're part of that plan. Having faith in this life doesn't mean that we have a stress-free life. Think about Daniel and his friends, what we've even learned thus far in the book. Even if you just get chapters one to four, they've been through quite the the situation of challenges and uh, being thrown in the fire and the threat of their life. And Hebrews 11 reminds us of the saints then that offered, that others suffered mocking and flogging even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. How can we find hope knowing that that's coming? But here's the reality. Our faith is not disappear. It doesn't disappear. It's not crushed because this earthly blessing doesn't come. Because God is with us even when it gets hard. God's with us even when it gets hard, even when life seems overwhelming, even if we lose our possessions or our jobs or our rights. See, evil evil will have its day, but God has the final say. God has the final say. And what we can't stop, he can. What we can't change, he can. What we can do is we can cry out like the disciples cried out. I think about in the book of Mark when there's the story of the account of Jesus uh, in the boat with them and there's a storm going on all around them. And this is what happens. In verse 38, but he was in the stern asleep. So Jesus is just asleep on the cushion. 
And everything is just like crashing all around. The boat's already filling. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And you might be in that place. God, don't you care about what's going on in my life right now? Don't you get that the waves are coming in? And this is what he does. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, certainly there are times when the actual storms in our life are calmed because we cry out to the Lord. But there are times when we are like in the place of Daniel where the storms have come, and it seems they are not going to end. God notices our circumstances. He does care. Actually, the peace that comes isn't that the storms stop coming, but it's the peace that he brings to you. Because if the Bible says in Philippians, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So the storms may be going crazy all around you, but the peace can come to you because of Christ. Because you can know that he is near. You can know that he's not absent. You can know that he's present in the midst of your suffering and trial. God is working even in the valley. Now, expectation number three is this. Waiting will not be wasted. Waiting will not be wasted. Look at verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. And I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. There's, there's waiting. He's appalled by the vision. The suffering is going to continue. There may be a long time before the resolution of pain or injustice happens. There may come constant pressure of intense persecution. And the valley is real. I mean, look at verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Can you relate? Maybe you have a burden about a child of yours, young or older. Maybe there's a situation in your life that you want to contain or you want to change and it's just out of your reach. Maybe there's a burden that's been brought on you and you've experienced being sick for days. You know it's not because you contracted a virus. You know it's not because you ate something that didn't sit well with you. You know it's the hurt 
that's in front of you that makes you want to crawl up in a ball and get in your bed, and you don't even know if you can stay in your bed because you just want to fall on the floor, and it has such a great weight on you. The valley is real. The waiting is real. But we must know God is working and that waiting isn't wasted, that God gets stuff done in you in the waiting because he's still working. He's still working as you're waiting. As I counsel people about any number of things, oftentimes people are hoping for the bit of truth that will simply stop everything. Well, well, if I do this one thing, everything will get better, as if the thing that was most important was getting to the end of it. God gets stuff done in us as we walk through the trials. Why? Because this is not our home. The things that present us right now, whatever the, the challenges that they may be, whether the things that we agree about, disagree about, whatever it is, this is not our home. And there should be a longing in us because God's getting stuff done in us here. It should cause us to be more dependent in prayer, but it looks like something. And Daniel actually shows us what does it look like to wait. I mean, the first thing Daniel does, he's overcome and he lays sick for some days. So I think we just need to know it's okay. Waiting looks like grieving. Grieve over the coming trial or judgment. It's real. Jesus, when he looked in the face of the cross, sweat, drops of blood. It's okay to grieve, but let that grief not keep you in that place. It's not meant for you to just be crushed down and just woe is me and never leave your house, never get out, never encounter the world anymore because this is just too much. Daniel certainly could have done that. I mean, he certainly had been faithful. I mean, at this point in time, he hadn't gone and done the lion's den thing, but his life had been in danger three times already, and his friends' lives had been in danger, and they had been thrown in the fire, and now just yet another thing, a dream that's horrible, and now this is another dream. He could have just been like, I'm done. But what does he do? Look. Then I arose and went about the king's business. Like, wait a minute. He's just not, he's, I mean, it doesn't appear that he's walking around sulking. What was me? There's a cloud over my head. No, he goes about the king's business. So we can be about the king's business. Even in, if we're in a season of affliction, we can continue to press in and serve the risen Christ. Martin Luther, you know, banging the 95 theses in Wittenberg, once was asked, what he would do if he knew that the world would come to an end tomorrow. This is what his response was. I would plant a tree. Luther understood that the eminence of the end does not diminish the value of faithful labors for God here and now. So for us too, 
Whether your calling is changing diapers or whether your calling is cleaning the kitchen or filling reports or designing dishwashers or painting pictures or making music or teaching students or tending to the sick, we should be about the business that God has called us to. Even if you don't know what you're called to do. Like, I get it. You know, high school kids, college-age kids, sometimes you're like, well, I don't know what God's called me to do. I'm trying to figure that out. God still allows us to be about the Father's business and simply be faithful right where we are as we are making disciples, as we are seeking to honor him. So be about the king's business, but in all of the waiting, long for the return of Christ. I mean, Daniel ends with he's appalled by the vision and he doesn't understand it. But friends, we have a different picture. We have something that Daniel didn't understand. When we look at verse 25, if you look at verse 25 when it's talking about the cunning of the ruler and he'll take deceit prosper and his own mind, uh, in his own mind he'll become great. It says without warning he shall destroy many. But we look at this differently. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but not by human hand. So though this may have been fulfilled in a historical event that took place, the reality is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage comes in Christ. Because when the enemy rises up against the prince of princes, he shall be broken. And it won't be by a human hand. It's by a divine hand. And his name is Jesus. But we're still waiting. Even if we could pass legislation that would ensure that our nation would run on biblical principles, even if we could elect officials that would honor God with their lives and not fear man, those accomplishments still would not abolish tears or alleviate pain or do away with death itself. Only the return of Jesus Christ will accomplish the work of renovation that we need. God will work out deliverance in his time. And there's a reality. We're not home yet. As we talked about Tony Snow at the beginning, less than a year after stepping down as the presidential press secretary, Tony Snow lost his battle with cancer. And he died at the age of 53 on July 12, 2008, leaving behind his wife and three children. But as he was dying, he wrote these words. We want lives of simple, predictable ease smooth, even trails as far as the eye can see. But God likes us to go off-road. He provokes us with twists and turns. He places us in predicaments that seem to defy our endurance and comprehension, and yet don't. Picture yourself in a hospital bed. The fog of anesthesia has begun to wear away. A doctor stands at your feet. A loved one holds your hand at the side. It's cancer. The healer announces. 
the natural reaction is to turn to God and ask him to serve as a cosmic Santa. Dear God, make it all go away. Make everything simpler. But another voice whispers, you have been called. Your quandary has drawn you closer to God, closer to those you love, closer to the issues that matter and has dragged into insignificance the banal concerns that occupy our normal time. He goes on and says, the moment you enter the valley of the shadow of death, things change. You discover that Christianity is not something doughy or passive or pious or soft. The life of belief teams with thrills and boldness and danger and shocks and reversals, triumphs and epiphanies. We get repeated chances to learn that life is not about us, that we acquire purpose and satisfaction by sharing God's love with others. And he closes by saying, God doesn't promise us tomorrow. He does promise us eternity. Filled with life and love, we cannot comprehend. And that one can, in the throes of sickness, point the rest of us toward timeless truths that will help us weather future storms. Though such trials, through such trials, God bids us to choose. Do we believe or do we not? We don't know much, but we know this. No matter where we are, no matter what we do, no matter how bleak or frightening our prospects, each and every one of us who believe each and every day lives in the same safe place, in the hollow of God's hand. Let's pray. Father, Tony Snow wouldn't have known the timeliness of his words. Daniel didn't know the timeliness that this chapter would have for us. In this day, in this time when we are facing challenges, Lord, would you remind us of who you are. Would you remind us, Father, that your word is true? Would you remind us that you're the God of of all history and that your hand is behind the events that seem unsettling and feel very real and are very real to us? God, I ask that you would remind us today and you write our perspective. Don't let us be distracted by the things of this world. Let us focus on Christ. Let us focus on the fact that you love us infinitely and nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Lord, I ask God that you do that work in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.